Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Saving the planet is nice, but how you talk about it and what you do about it looks pretty different depending on where on the planet you are. Many rich countries' righteous calls to environmental action land pretty badly when received in less wealthy countries. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Ruchira Talukada. As a South Asian woman, she has lived and researched this struggle, both in her work in India and in Australia's environmental movement. Today, she unpacks some of the tensions that exist between Global North and Global South environmentalism. We talk about some of the language that isn't working, language that you or I might use or see a lot, like narratives around renewables and Australia becoming an energy superpower. She also provides some clear suggestions about how we can get out of this messy talk, including what we can learn from the grounded environmentalism she worked with in India. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Ruchia, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Amanda, for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. So we have lots of different changemakers, people who change the world from lots of different places around the world. I wonder if you could introduce yourself to our audience by telling them what kind of change do you make in the world? Indeed. Uh, Before I begin, I'll acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm on. And I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. It always will be Aboriginal land. So thinking about the kind of change maker I I am, I think the first thing that really comes to mind very strongly is I try to think about the implications of social change across classes and across the great caste divide that we have in the Indian society that I come from. And I think I'm very specifically thinking about change in our energy sources. And I'm thinking about change as an environmentalist. And I think specifically thinking of what's a solution to me that might be a further injustice for someone else is the kind of complexity I like to work with and think through in terms of change making. Excellent. So recognizing that change making is not just a plus all the time, that actually that that if it's not couched in the right terms, that your positive change could actually be detrimental to someone else. 
Absolutely. Cool. So, I mean, the obvious question to then ask is, where did that take on? Not everyone who does change making has that kind of awareness, self-awareness about the implications of change. Tell us a little bit about your journey that brought you to that kind of sophisticated approach to change making and feel free to go all the way back. Tell us about the couple of moments that really shaped you. Well, you know, you've given me the cue go all the way back. So I think I really will. I think, Amanda, one of the, uh, uh, this is something I think more and more about now. I think for a lot of us growing up in India and the generation we did in, I was a kidlet in the 80s and I was in my teens in the 90s. They, they were great times. They, they were great, great times. And <laughs> they India, were similar for me. And the Indian economy opened up. We went from being a social, kind of a socialist, you know, kind of centrally structured economy, kind of society to towards neoliberalization after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the process started, but from the 2000s, very strongly. I think going to university and then kind of becoming an, you know, kind of an earning adult in those times brought back a sense of the fact that I have this rich political history and legacy of the freedom struggle. It might sound a bit cliched, but it never kind of, there were lots of things that were taken for granted in terms of democracy. And the Indian democratic project, actually, the constitution, let's say, was a challenge to Western democracies in many ways. You have this poor global South country, which is a democracy, but it's not this open market. It was social. It was almost this kind of taunt. And I just kind of think what came before it, like generations of a freedom struggle with so many strands and the plurality of it, I think that, that that's a phenomenal thing to be able to imagine and hold in one's consciousness. So when you said go right back, I think that sits as a very rich history. And the more I there's, this is so much more of it to understand because we only know of a few strands of like that, you know, the Gandhian movement. And so we don't know about Ambedkar, who was the, you know, kind of the Dalit leader, this eminent scholar. So just there's so much that we don't know and unpack globally about that. So that sits very strongly because I think that's also at the heart, in a way, the contestations amongst different societies in India and what kind of society we need to create. And finally, the creation of a very progressive constitution in the world, which if upheld, would be a model for a global society to look at, you know, that is under threat today. So I think that legacy sits very strongly with me. And I think about it more and more, given the times we are in in India. And, you know, of course, the implications that has for the world. The other thing that kind of really strongly sits with me is when I myself began to work in the space of environmentalism. And I must say that I have, in terms of work experience, I've only worked in big environmental organizations. I've worked in Greenpeace in India and then Greenpeace in Australia. Can, can I ask, before you jump into going to that... Why environmentalism? I used to be a communications professional. That was that is what I was as a young adult and an appetite for kind of stories and framing messages and narratives. I really liked that. But I think I ran out of steam and inspiration to do that for corporations. And I soul searched. I wanted to work with Greenpeace India. And of course, there's a story again going right back of as a four-year-old, seeing that photograph of the Zodiac, Greenpeace Zodiac in between the whale and the harpoon, and like, oh, what heroes. So you kind of walk in with those visions and that love in your heart into an organization. But I think what you experience also interesting is 
the reality of your own society and context and all the stories we could be telling from the global south, but how that clashes with northern frames that are given down. And so that was, I think, my first experience of, you know, one frame doesn't fit all. And we are actually talking about a very democratic kind of space, like an international NGO with offices all around the world. Why should it be like this? So I think that was also for me a personal experience in the space that I'm very passionate about still and work in pretty much all my life about why should there be frames and stories imposed, you know, kind of when they should be generated from the ground up relevant to those societies. So I think that kind of sits, still sits with me as, a, let's say, a source of inspiration or instigation mm. to drive the kind of change that I want to, yeah, want to drive. So, I mean, there's a, we're going to spend most of our discussion here talking about these tensions between imposed narratives and, and generative narratives and the difference and, and how a different kind of, of global movement could be created if there was a little less imposition and a little bit more co-creation. But you haven't only worked in India. We are sitting here in Sydney, Australia. What drew you to come here? So from Greenpeace India, I I got a job at Greenpeace Australia and I moved to uh, Sydney. I had never been to Australia before. So first time I came, I came with a big suitcase to kind of work at Greenpeace Australia. And interestingly enough, I was going to, so I was going to be the communications officer on the anti-whaling campaign. And again, that takes me back to my story of the four-year-old who just see those photographs. I'm like, wow. But I think again, that experience of On the one hand, there was a curiosity of experiencing working within an environmental campaign in the global north and kind of comparing that in my head with how we worked at Greenpeace India. Uh, And I think the north-south frame, which is kind of the the kind of the defining frame of my thinking and work had, you know, kind of that process started when I was in Greenpeace India. Uh, And I read Ramachandra Guha, who is a Marxist historian and his critique of the uh, wilderness environmentalism in America. He had just written his thesis on the Chipko movement in India, which is kind of people reclaiming the forest for themselves. And so I think those those things were formative understandings of how I looked at North versus South. So when I came to Greenpeace Australia, on the one hand, it was an interesting learning process about um, environmental campaigns and also the societal complexities or can I say lack of complexity relative to where I came from that we have to work with to bring about the change we want. So that, of course, was a very kind of strong understanding of the, I would say, relative lack of complexity. You're talking about much lesser unevenness. You're talking about it being okay to frame environmental campaigns that are relevant for middle class predominantly white, given that the environmental movement is predominantly white, kind of Australians, versus the kinds of things you have to cut across when you devise a campaign in in the Indian context. So from Greenpeace, I moved to the Australian Conservation Foundation. And I think, and I spent the longest time there of any organizations that I worked in in my life, six years. And I think that was an even more entrenched learning experience of, uh, you know, kind of how environmentalism operates in this kind of a society where we don't have to, for example, it's only recently that environmentalists and farmers have formed solidarity. I couldn't even imagine that in India it could operate without having formed those solidarities just because what you're up against is that this kind of that much more intense. So those kinds of reflections came through very strongly about the, I think the, the societal complexity or 
la- relative lack of complexity. So interesting that you put it like that because, I mean, I, I, I hear you because you're, because when, if you're only casting a campaign to a white middle class, you're creating a lack of complexity for you. But but every society is deeply and richly complex, you know, with so many different interests. Part of me wonders, um, you know, and, and, and not to be judging specific organisations, but but the power of the work that you were doing in India is that you were, because of the power differentials and also because the diversity was right in your face, that you had to be encumbered and work with those different relationships where maybe um, hearing that you could get away with not doing that here, that there was less accountability for that, that it was possible to do that. Not ideal, but possible to not do that in that environment. Is that is that something that you, you contrast that you took away that you couldn't get away with that in is what I'm hearing in, in India. I think, you know, you, you that's that's exactly right. And I think uh, I'm just going to refer to my um, PhD thesis, which I finished last Woo-hoo! year, thankfully. <laughs> and it again came out of my experience, really, let's say, which was about finding intersectionality in glo- environmentalism, the global north and south. And I look at Australia and India as case studies. I think that's right, Amanda, because in my thesis, I kind of trace, the tr- let's say, the transformation of environmentalism. And in Australia, I'm looking at how Uh, that kind of relative lack of complexity of how campaigns are devised, having to be revisited in the face of massive coal extraction at a time when we should be kind of, you know, phasing out coal. Uh, So then the previous ways of working are not working. So the solidarity model has to be achieved. So you're going from campaigns to solidarities across historic kind of divides in a settler colonial society. And look, I mean, there are some parts of some movements in, you know, in global north environments that have sought to do the subjective work that you're describing. But what I'm hearing is, is that that's, and I think there are lots of reasons why the environmental movement hasn't had to do that in the global north so far. But the challenge will be what happens from now on because stopping coal in a country like Australia or just dealing with climate change anywhere is the kind of thing that needs everyone, which requires not just a simplistic message but actually an incredibly intersectional, co-created set of demands that, that might include environmental demands, might include demands around the climate, but it's also going to include other justice demands in order to be truly um, speaking to all those audiences. Absolutely. I think finding that we all love the word intersectionality, don't we? But finding that intersectionality because environmentalism has been a thing onto itself for a long time, and I mean the mainstream northern environmentalism, the kind of the wilderness kind of centricity of it and the national park model has been a thing onto itself and having to find uh, solidar- deep solidarities is the transformation it has had. But more and more, solidarities with other critical justice issues and human rights issues is something it will have to be finding. And I think, you know, th- this is for me, of course, we think of we think of uh, the global south in many different ways, their perceptions that are cast. But I think when you talk, we're thinking about societies that have been in struggle in, for for intergenerationally, you're also talking about deep movements and deep solidarities that have formed. So when I think of kind of Indian society and the and the kind of movements that have that are pre-independence, which still have continued on in different ways and different iterations, and you see reflections of that in struggles like the Narmada Bachao Andolan against the Narmada 
the series of dams on the Narmada River, the longest running environmental struggle in the world, a lot of them do in a way reflect Gandhian movements. So you're talking about a long time, but in Australia, of course, there's been kind of, you know, various movements. Australia has been influenced by the peace movement and there's been an indigenous land rights and kind of civil rights movement where society has joined in. So intersections have been formed, mm. but environmentalism by itself really hasn't been kind of deeply intersectional uh, in many ways that it's needing to be now in the mm. future because we are faced with climate change and the critical issue is about us and human rights. The thing is to be able to center the most critical and vulnerable communities in that rather than think about just us privileged middle-class people in the global north. Yes. And look, it, what is interesting, and we're going to get into some of these dimensions of the the, the tensions between global north and global south and how it plays out with, with messages. But what it strikes me, I mean, you're looking back to the sort of historic struggles of India as inspiration for your activism. I mean, I think of, I, I have in a really different way, in a really different place. I look back to the struggles, I was involved in the union movement for many years and I look, I was always particularly inspired by the work of Jack Mundy and the Green Bands. And for those who are listening who don't know, you should definitely Google this guy. Is an extraordinary story. But the nutshell is he was a radical unionist who, after working in with low-paid builders' labourers, they, those low-paid builders' labourers got better wages, got better organised, and then they started defending the natural environment and creating these things called green bears to protect working-class neighbourhoods and green spaces across the city, stopping development and really changing the shape of the city and being the first case of urban environmentalism, certainly in Australia, possibly in, the, um, in, in at least the global north, that's in the tradition here too. So there's definitely lots for modern environmental and climate organisations to, to draw from as they build an intersectional lens. But before we get to the hope of what they can do, let's talk a little bit about where this clash, where this lack of connection between a global north message and frame and approach and a global south experience, how that manifests. I know you're a communications expert even before you came to the environmental movement and your your work and research has looked at some of these communications frames. Why don't you talk us through some of the narratives? You know, that I think that possibly even our listeners might, on, I certainly have at times thought, oh, that sounds okay, doesn't it? But actually when you dig into it, when you think about it in a deeper sense, when you think about the who's being heard and who's not, there is, there's a problem here. Talk to us a little bit about some of these narratives that might, might be a problem when it comes to these, the dimensions of global north and global south. I think what I want to centre is the current, it's not a debate, the, I mean, we're we are talking, we are in a transition, we are in an energy transition, and there have been previous energy transitions in the world, like from dams to kind of coal and fossil fuels. And now we're moving from fossil fuels to renewables. And I think I want to talk about a predominant narrative that emerges from the ground time and again in South Asia, in India. So JAL, J-A-L, Jameen, J-A-M-E-E-N, jungle, forests. JAL, jungle, Jameen uh, is what indigenous Adivasi people talk about when they talk about their land and their connection to the land. What 
they are fighting for when they're fighting extractivism on their land is, you know, to preserve the water, forests and their land on which they still live and where their cultural economy and their practices are tied to. And the interesting, this is the, this is the fundamental difference between an environmental fight on the ground in India versus Australia is that in most cases, the communities are still living on the land and off the land. So not only is it about cultural economies and practices, it is also about the very subsistence you have and future generations will have. So because there are so many struggles like that on the ground, because that is the ground in a place like India, that actually becomes the predominant democratic narrative in a global, in, in, in a bigger environment movement across the Indian landscape. Whereas in Australia, even if it is solidarities on the ground with indigenous communities fighting, um, you know, for their water and for their land, I think there is still a further removed narrative sitting somewhere else with kind of urban middle-class environmentalists. And I, I, what I find interesting is that if we are to center communities and their struggles at the center of an intersectional north-south global narrative for climate justice, I think the global south offers a strong cue there because th those struggles and those narratives are just on a mass scale. So that is the dominant narrative there. And, you know, for anyone who's, who's worked with First Nations communities in Australia, country place the land as the space of nurture human connection with country being indistinguishable and, and built together. You know, we have those connections in Australia too, but we don't, not all movements are built from them. Some of the strongest environmental campaigns have come when they ha when those connections have been made. But, you know, in some ways is what you're describing is like a reminder about where we need to anchor our focus. I just want to draw on one example. And again, I kind of, you know, kind of bring this out very strongly in my thesis because it kind of really helps to think about it that way and that brings about a shift in perception. So in my thesis, I looked at two struggles against coal mining and of course looked at the Adani, our Adani coal mine, Carmichael coal mine, and the three strands of the struggle against it, the Wangan and Jagalingu, the farmers and the Stop Adani movement as different societies, let's say, fighting that coal mine. And in India, I looked at the struggle of an, not only an indigenous community, but again, that's the reality on the ground. It's mixed peasant communities and indigenous people across 11 villages around a forest where a coal mine was going to be dug and Greenpeace India's solidarity with the people of Mahan and fighting that. So what comes out very strongly by comparing these two is that because of the mass scale of those kinds of struggles like in Mahan on the ground in India, even an organization like Greenpeace, which is international and the people who are driving Greenpeace in India, middle class urban environmentalists, but even they will shift their narrative of climate change and other things or trashing tiger land, to talk about democracy on the ground, to talk about Jal jungles, I mean, water land forests. Everyone is adopting and centering that narrative of communities. And of course, in Australia, there are so many different strands to a struggle, but an indigenous strand is just kind of one of the strands. It's not the strand that's 
fundamentally centered and not. So that's where I talk about the criticality of mass scale things on the ground in the global, you know, kind of in the global south, where then it becomes the dominant narrative. And if I can be flippant for a second, because when, when I put out anything, any analysis related to India and, you know, kind of how India's, India's climate actions and to the environment movement, to certain lists, how to interpret it and so on and so forth. I think many people still feel free to just kind of casually make a comment about if we don't fix the population problem. Wow. We are not, oh, you know. Wow. So it doesn't matter if, if, let's say, and I don't like the word, but if I am the expert and I'm analyzing India's you know, climate policy actions and sending out an assessment without reading it or something. People feel entitled. Well, they're like white-splaining you or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's weird. Just, it's, it's just that old thing about the population bomb. It still goes on. But anyway, so people feel entitled to do that. They can. If I can be flippant for a second, Amanda, and say that, hey, you know what? That's that's what I'm talking to because there are so many of us in India on the ground. That narrative of the ground becomes a dominant narrative. It would actually help communities in the global north in the in the minority world as we call it if those the way those community narratives are centered in an environmental narrative in the global south could also be centered here yeah right so and what i'm hearing right is the, is the power of place and localism in in an environmental campaign like the groundedness is built on a, a localness that's that's not just an abstract localness as people rooted in country because their livelihood is coming from that environment as well, you know, their food, their livelihood, everything is rooted in those communities. That's why they're defending those communities from, um, from coal mines, from extractivism. And what I'm hearing is that one of the reasons why perhaps in the global north there is a more abstracted, detached set of messages is that it's not as grounded and that if there was a more grounded politics here, a, a stronger investment in localism, which hasn't always been the environment movement's greatest strength. Like, the, you know, there's been action around saving particular forests, like wild wilderness work, but not necessarily sustained, hasn't had a huge organising culture as it has, the environment movement has in other places, like in America's environmental justice movement or <laughs> clearly what you're describing in India. Yes, it comes down to the imperative, I think. And I just wanted to kind of drop in, uh, you know, so India has the largest number, according to the Environment Justice Atlas, which is a global mapping project of environmental conflicts and environmental justice struggles. India has the highest number of environmental conflicts, which are basically kind of land conflicts. So people are either being dispossessed or driven off their land, or their lands are being polluted and contaminated for various projects. So that just kind of gives us... So the struggles... And the narrative and civil, urban civil society in working in solidarity, all that's in the context of what's actually currently going on. And I referred to earlier about, you know, kind of privatization of India's development and, you know, kind of it's been... It, it's kind of started from then in terms of the scale and intensity of dispossessions and displacement and land conflicts. So it just kind of goes to say that the kind of mainstream development that you know, is the model of Western development, which, of course, you know, kind of the global south is entitled to because that's the model of development, creates those kinds of conflicts on the ground. People still live on the ground. It's cultures, traditions and livelihoods. So then coming to what many have, and I haven't found kind of, you know, like a source about, you know, kind of who started this 
this, this, this phrase, but carbon environmentalism, as it's described, basically about stopping fossil fuels and starting renewables without any attention to what is the scale or what is the model of that renewable technology? Is it something that displaces people from the land because it's vast scale? Is it something that actually doesn't? So communities on the ground in a place like India, in South Asia, many parts of the global south are the intersection of three or four different kinds of injustices. One is the climate injustice in terms of being vulnerable in you know to climate impacts and not having the basic comforts of development to shield themselves from it, like air conditioning or like even you know kind of mobility to move away from extreme heat events. The other is about energy injustice. A lot of communities live without energy or electricity. The third is actually about, you know, kind of the the injustice of a transition. They might actually also be working in a coal mine. And so if that means that they will kind of lose their job. So there are intersections. And then what does it mean if on their land or, you know, the land or their collective communal forest from which they draw their livelihoods is also taken away or a solar plant is put there and they don't have their land anymore. So we are talking about all these intersections of injustices. So carbon environmentalism without critique of of the kinds of technologies and projects and what kind of land conflicts that can start again is a problem that's getting bigger and bigger on the ground in India at the moment, just like we have seen multiple waves of displacement and dispossession and land conflicts and violence with other forms of energy like large dams and the Narmada Bachao Andolan I talked about earlier, the you know basically the struggle against the dams on the Narmada River in central India. Actually, it couldn't stop the dams, but it actually made the World Bank decide against investing in massive large-scale dams in geographies like the Global South. And large dams are largely understood as a social environmental disaster because of those struggles. So what we're seeing is a repetition of some of the mistakes we've had with other forms of energy. And I sit in conversations with environmentalists and economists who say that, well, coal is still better than renewables because without taking into consideration the fact that if you're losing your land and if you've been displaced, if you have been displaced by dams intergenerationally, four generations back, your your ancestors were, dis- ancestors were displaced for dams. Then you were displaced for coal mines. Now you're being displaced for renewables projects. What does that mean? Who's justice? Who is it better for? Yes. And I don't think that I think that's a very sophisticated take that's not necessarily present in Global North discussions where it's just seen as renewables are the nirvana, renew everything, you know, more solar panels is better, as though there is not a complexity to how technology lands in a community because technology can land in an abusive way, whether it's polluting, intensely polluting, or whether it's drawing energy from the sun. There's, it's not the only question. The, the form of, I mean, people used to say this about nuclear that nuclear technology would save us because it can produce lots of energy. But n- nothing, everything has to be analysed in context. If, if a nuclear technology is going to cause or risk populations around it, then it's got risk attached to it, even if it's producing lots of energy. There's another frame that I know of that is pretty bristling, and but it's cropping up a lot. We see it a lot. And now there's a, a government that's interested in doing more about renewables. 
we're based in Australia, the phrase is coming out of Australia, but it's being used in other places. It's the idea of Australia becoming a renewable superpower or a great superpower. How do you feel about that phrase? I, I feel it makes me feel very uncomfortable, but it makes me feel doubly uncomfortable when environmentalists, when climate activists talk about it with a lot of emphasis. I feel uncomfortable about their vision. Superpower has, you know, we know what the ramifications and what the implications of a superpower are. What what terms, what kind of terms do you push onto your vulnerable, vulnerable neighbors, onto other countries in the region if you are a superpower? What kind of power are you asserting? That's one problem. The other problem is about what is the vision of environmentalists and climate activists who think that Australia should export renewable energy? Renewable energy is renewable. It's not finite. Why don't they think about the countries, particularly, let's say, global south countries in the region, in Australia, you know, kind of in the Indo-Pacific region that Australia is part of, as being enabled to produce their own renewable energy. So I kind of, I actually find it very problematic, um, the vision that, you know, kind of my colleagues and peers in the environment and climate space in the global north might have, where they think it's particularly okay to think that a big country will, you know, kind of push terms of trade onto vulnerable countries and give them energy, whereas because it's renewable, that's the very nature of it, they should be able to generate and, you know, kind of, they should be able to generate vibrant industries in their own countries to produce indigenous sources of renewables that are relevant. And I think this is where I want to also come to the fact that India also envisages and thinks of itself as a renewables energy superpower. But of course, a lot of that power is needed in India, or maybe some is exported to the neighbors. And again, the vision there is something that's very, of course, enabled by a carbon environmentalism that I talked about earlier in terms of stop kind of stop fossil fuels, start renewables. So all renewables are fantastic. So when India thinks of it as a renewables energy superpower as well, you know, and very much a country that wants to kind of stand up and be seen by the West as a force to reckon with, India is also kind of similarly developing massive on-scale renewables technologies, which are driving those kinds of land conflicts and problems on the ground. What is not happening where, where most of the money and the international finance is not going, international private funding is not going, is towards renewables technologies that are right by communities. So this is where the global pull and push is occurring with finance. This is where a global enabling of massive scale projects is happening. And with that is growing this vision of massive energy projects from which, you know, you can export energy. And it's problematic at many levels. And I think we need to, this is interesting because Australian governments, federal government and the Queensland government, which I look at in my thesis, looking at the Dani coal mine, thinks of itself as this kind of fossil fuel exporting superpower. So that is problematic for the environment and climate movement. But what is not problematic is another technology. 
you know, regardless of the fact that Australia is still going to be exporting all of that, why can't we have a different imaginary? Who are we also really being true to the interests of communities? You know, when we are producing massive scale energy for massive projects on the ground in Australia, uh, are some <clears throat> people getting really rich from it? Is it is is it? Can we have a different vision? And also, and it, it's it's a clash of values, right? Because the the opportunity, if there is one, with renewables is that it can be this decentralised technology that actually communities, you know, the so it goes community energy projects that can be a de, there can be a decentralisation of of energy production, which could be put in the hands of communities. They determine how they produce their energy or some of their energy, and there's a decentralisation of, of literally a decentralisation of power. And, and and with it, political power, decentralisation of political power. But we seem to be losing that opportunity for that bigger debate, possibly because people are panicked about climate change. If you're trying to think about better intentions, maybe they think we need to do it so fast. So all we, all we can possibly use is a hegemonic set of values. But we are losing a lot if we do, because what world will we create if we don't if we don't have a different set of values than those that are causing all the extractivism and the destruction to communities, to our, to in a, causing inequality as well as contributing to climate change. So look, it's pretty dreary, right? Like this is a terrible situation that we're in where if we can't come at, and we've discussed the dimensions of how difficult these tensions are, but I'm sure you have thoughts about how a different approach to these tensions between the global north and the global south can be reached like what is what is what are pathways through these tensions and and challenges that you've identified i think i also want to kind of you know just to respond to that question i also want to say that it's probably harder in today's climate uh, today's political climate in india to give solidarity internationally so uh, the case studies that i looked at you know, kind of like part of the story is about the crackdown on civil society and crackdown on anti-coal campaigns in India. And the organization that I used to work in, Greenpeace India, literally barely exists. And we know that Amnesty India has been wiped out. They closed their offices. So it's actually really hard to give solidarity internationally, like even previously has been given. Like there's been a lot of international solidarity uh, for the Narmada struggle. In the 80s and the 90s um, and even later, there is some solidarity now for the struggles of indigenous Adivasi people in the Hastio forests in central India, where the forests are being cut down uh, for coal mines, which have been allocated as India's COVID economic recovery. But having said that, I think this is the, like we are all together. I mean, if I think about climate activists and environmental activists, and I think my my kind of interest and passion and focus has been at the North-South interface because perhaps there's an opportunity to work with global North environmentalists and activists for them to nuance their approach, understanding, and, you know, kind of campaigns and narratives in a way that they hold that complexity that is so critical to the ground in the global south. So they're not, their narratives don't, on the one hand, when they say stop coal, global south love governments like India say that northern environmentalists are trying to stop and threaten our development. And at the same time, when they say yes to renewables, 
Global South governments see that as a green tick for massive projects like Adani Solar Park in, in, in South India, which is causing land conflicts, which is dispossessing people. So I, I, the reason I still feel interested to keep pursuing in the space is because I do see that there's an opportunity to work with environmentalists and climate activists. And I find the next generation from me and then onwards very open and receptive and actually quite fascinated by this complexity to understand it and then try and see that how we can how we can incorporate stories that nuance our own understanding. Uh, and I think that is that's maybe a vital step, but maybe just one step. But I, I, I feel, I, I find that my focus and my appetite and my energy is going that direction now. I'm not surprised that you see the stories, right, given your lifelong passion and experience with that. But also the power of story, the stories are distinctive. Everyone has their own story and then communities have stories, but they are all intermixing interests and identities and experiences. And I guess what I'm hearing is if the if the sort of interconnected stories that communities have can be held in and with the fight for climate, then the fight for climate will be better rather than a climate message being seen as preeminent arriving in community. The message comes from the ground to embrace, but to not just be a message only about our climate, but of a, of a climate as part of how we live a battle of how we live together. Exactly, exactly. And I think we are kind of, you're coming back, you're kind of, you know, taking from what I'm saying and drawing it back to what I said in the beginning in a way that's helping me make more sense of what I just said. Thank you. I think it is then, it, it's about, you know, kind of making change with understanding. And I, um, and I, 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 I like, I feel really energized and passionate when I hear kind of, you know, stories from, the other part of the world being understood and held and processed by young environmentalists and climate activists. And I kind of say young a lot because I, I think I just want to talk just for a minute about Sapna. Sapna means a vision in many South Asian languages. Sapna, South Asian Climate Solidarity is the name we have come up with. We're an intergenerational group of South Asian people in the climate movement. And I think uh, we, it was a lockdown project. We started meeting online on Zoom and then some funding. And here you go. We have a project and we have some interesting things coming up. So please stay tuned. But what's interesting for us is that we, f we find that we can bring those stories to a northern environment and climate movement through ourselves because we straddle that, you know, kind of north and south. The others I work with are from here. They have been born and brought up here. They haven't worked across India and Australia, but they have community and family connections and that intergenerational experience. So it's an interesting embodied process um, for us to kind of spill those kinds of stories out into the movement. And I also find my peers, and I say intergenerational because there are quite a few ex-school strikers who are part of our community. And I draw a lot of inspiration from their passion to tell stories about the lived experiences of their families uh, from India, from Bangladesh, of climate impacts, and their experiences, for example, in Western Sydney of extreme heat and connecting those two. So I draw a lot of kind of, um, I, I draw energy from their 
passion and the interest to tell those stories. And I also see that those stories might not necessarily be centered in a dominant climate story here. And I see their struggles with it. So I think I'm kind of following their appetite and following their passion. And some of us are working together with them to be able to tell those kinds of stories through lived experiences, but finally help the climate movement to touch the context and the stories from the global south. And so the more active and diverse our, you know, a climate movement can be where people are respected and treasured for their distinctiveness and their, their the story of their family, their exper- their current experiences, but their in, you know generations of experience they carry with them. The stronger the movement will be, just like your passion partly leans back into the histories that you carry from the Indian struggles for democracy. If our climate movement can can connect powerfully with uh, the with a brilliant population filled with interesting people who've travelled from around the world, as well as extraordinary people who've been here for sixty thousand years, if we can treasure all that diversity in a modern climate movement, we might actually get to a place that isn't just borrowing cheap phrases from neoliberalism to try and you know to to net zero by 2030, but actually build the climate kind of justice that we're going to need to have a better world. And it reminds me of a set of interviews I did with 12 um, South Asian youth climate activists for a report that we're going to bring out very shortly. And one of them said something that, you know, kind of a lot of us older generation, you know, kind of uh, people of color in the environment movement have kind of grappled with but never been able to articulate just because we just didn't have the space. They're like, Australia is a multicultural society. We should have a multicultural climate and environment movement and stories from around the world, stories from Global South should be kind of you know all over it and then everyone feel represented. Everyone will feel like their skin in the, you know, kind of um, in the game. Um, there is skin in the game because climate, you know, kind of climate change affects us all and disproportionately more communities whose stories they want to tell. Uh, from the global south. But then this thing about having skin in the game, this feeling about not having skin in the game because your stories are not centered or your stories are kind of put to the side, that feeling is very strong. So I think they put it very clearly in the sense that we are a multicultural society. The environment movement should be multicultural. We should have stories from all over the world so that youth from all over the world, from the global south, feel like participating in it. Oh, it's a great challenge. I, and I know that it's something that you're not just talking about, but you're making happen on the ground. <laughs> Thank you, Retria, for coming on the podcast today. And we will circulate information about the groups. And look, I'm happy to circulate the report when it comes out too, so people can follow up and find out more about your extraordinary work. Thank you so much for having me on the Pleasure. podcast. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. And this is Series 6, so there's plenty to look at in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. And check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.